It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest, the annual conundrum show. We are live at the Park West in Chicago, Illinois. We're live for a night, for a night of moral bickering and ethical wrestling and uh, squabbling of all sorts. I'm joined on stage. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura and Slate. I'm joined on stage by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. And by John Dickerson of Slate and CBS News. So, let's get to the show. Let's get to the conundrums. During the show, we're going to ask you if you have a conundrum. Please come up to the mic. We're going to intersperse the ones that we've gathered from from uh, people on the internet and, and people that tweeted to us about them. Uh, we're going to intersperse those with ones that are going to be live in the audience. So feel free to come up to the mics with your, with your excellent conundrum. So let's start with... Oh, and we should say we're going to have a special guest coming midway through the show. Amy Dickinson is going to be here <laughs> to, offer, to offer professional, professional advice on this. Um, all right, so let's, we're going to do this first question. We, we had debates about what our first question would be. I'm going to make an executive decision. It's from Ben Heilvile, which is a really weird name. An, a good name, an interesting name. And Don't also my favorite. our great question asklers. My favorite German beer. Heilvile? All right. So, so Ben's, Ben asked a question which really makes you wonder about his marriage, but here we go. So you, Ben posits the following situation. You propose to dear loved one, and uh, your loved one accepts, and you're going to get married, and she says to you, just after she's accepted your proposal, there's something I need to tell you. I have a box here. It's a, a little metal box. It's locked. It has something in it. You can never know what it is. It's a secret you just can't know. How and it's not And it's not the lockbox that has social security. It, is, it might be, for all we know. You, you will never know. Little this big or well, little this Well, it was big? three by three, but you know what? I don't know if it was three feet by three feet or three inches by three inches. I would ben. say it's three inches by three or inches. Or three hectares. Because three feet by three is feet Hector would be like a whole or? body, a yeah. corpse. That would be more alarming. But it would be through your whole life. So... Um, so you couldn't, could you not ask or you could you not open it? You could not inquire about the contents of the box. You could inquire, but you would know that you would never get an answer, I it think. It will remain a secret. What if you, can you, but obviously you can't defile the box and open it yourself. I, you could, but presumably, presumably it has the kind of lock that if you opened it, she would then know that yeah. you'd opened it. Isn't the idea of the question whether you could live with a secret like right. that rather than what can you do to make the secret? Yeah. 
could so could you clearly I couldn't live with the secret. Could you? Well, are, so, so <laughs> I've already got my like. It seems to me like to lock, my, pick, and set going. My 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 thought on this is first of all, she shouldn't have told you she had the box. Right, that secrets and privacy in a marriage are actually healthy and good, but we don't necessarily want our noses rubbed in right. them. Right. It's like for you know, if she could say, I you know, I I had an affair with one of your friends, but I'm not gonna tell you which one. That's not a good that's not a good But thing. it is but the friend who can fit in a box that is three by three. <laughs> so that would limit your friends to the very small ones. <laughs> oh my god, it's him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right, so but, but so once she, but isn't her act of telling you aggressive? Is, it's aggressive, and isn't it morally disqualifying? I mean, isn't that make you think like you couldn't? Someone who did that to you, you couldn't be married. It's not to? morally. What if you're into aggression? Couldn't you also mm-hmm. argue that the person is being as honest as they can be with the secret that they are making sure that you are fully informed? Although of course you're not, because it's transparency about a secret. Well, you're fully informed about your ignorance, which right. I which I would take any day, really. But right. it's different than if she, you know, if you knew she worked for the CIA and she, you knew she was in worked for the CIA and she had secrets she couldn't tell you. That seems like you can live with the fact that you know that she has secrets that she can't tell you. But this feels, I don't know, this feels really different to me. This feels, this feels wrong. I'm not sure I could marry someone who did that to me. Huh. Although, so it, that's because you feel like the, by announcing it, the person is kind of dangling it in your face. and um, It's a kind of fucking with you that is not... It suggests that you're going to be fucked with throughout the life, throughout life. So it's thought, not the secret. It's, it's not, not what's the secret. In the I thought that was the purpose of marriage at one level. <laughs> I, it's not what's you have in had the too box. many drinks already. I know, really. <laughs> um, it's I'm not, not the one who went blue immediately. Or I guess I did. I didn't go expletive immediately. Sorry, I'm just um, getting that straight. Yes, uh, good. It's work not the there. secret, right? It's not the it's secret. It's not what's in the box. It's the fact of having the secret. Right. Flaunted. Right. No. No. I think it. I think it's okay to have marital secrets, right? Because everyone has them. That's why we can't read each other's minds, and that's a good thing. Right. And, right. Right. Huh. So would so would you guys marry? Would you guys go through with a marriage? Yeah. Sure. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> I think I would, too. Except I, I think, think my I current would. wife would be unhappy about that. <laughs> she would. She likes you. Um, I think I would be... I would want to understand more about why the person couldn't tell me. I would do a lot of question and prodding, not to find out the secret, although I'm sure I'd be curious, but to try to understand the act of aggression. All right. I would not marry. Let's do a quick audience poll We'll do, would you marry this person? Would you not marry this person? First, would you marry this person? Make it audibly. Would you marry the person? Okay. Would you not marry this person? Right. In addition, in addition to numbers, the not marriage people had passion and emotion behind their yeah. response. They feel more threatened. The rest of us were a little lukewarm. Okay, let's go on to an extremely, for me, personal question. This comes from Rachel, who is, doesn't include her last name. So she says, it's a would you rather. Would you rather have a great, fabulous job, which is prestigious, but is beyond your capacity, and which you're constantly worried about being exposed as a fraud, or a small, demeaning, invisible job where you can make a small contribution to the world? 
I recuse myself from this on the account of the fact I already have the former. <laughs> Which former? The you have a job fraud? where you're going to be exposed as a fraud? Right. So we all, I think, worry about being exposed as frauds. But we wouldn't trade that, actually, would we? Right? Because you're, sort of, you're hoping that maybe you're not a fraud. Yeah. I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> we, I think what may, we, the audience may have a different view. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll take the first. You would take the... Yeah, I think... What I, if you... Yeah. Re- because you would assume you're not a fraud, or that if you are a fraud, you would train up quickly enough that you would still do a good because job? Because I believe in striving. Even if it seems scary and the learning curve would see... It would take a lot for me... If I really was faced with that choice, which you would never, in fact, know all the variables, I would want to believe that the striving and the ambition of trying to live up to the expectation was worthwhile, even if I couldn't make it. Reach exceeds your grasp. Yeah. Huh. I guess that's right. I'm, I mean, I'm in the midst of that. I've just switched my career track. So I've now I've moved from being an editor to being a CEO. What do I know about CEOing? Not very much. Um, but investors, potential investors out there, I know a lot about <laughs> <Yeah>. CEOing. <laughs> uh, no, but it, but I actually find it. I've, I'm in the so I'm in the midst of sort of full imposter syndrome every day, and I find it incredibly exciting because. First of all, you realize that you can learn a lot of things really quickly if you try. Uh, second of all, if you just learn a little bit of language, uh, people don't even know that you're an imposter. <laughs> and, and third of all, just, I don't know, it's, it's, very, um, it's very invigorating to be able to do something different and even something you're not good at yet because you know that you will learn. So do you think, uh, because you brought up imposter syndrome, it occurs to me that the reason we're all answering this the same way has to do with how much of a stable base we have underneath ourselves, that we essentially believe we can at least like give it a good whirl. And also that the risk of failure is not that dramatic in our lives. So all of these values of excitement and invigoration count a lot for us. Whereas I think the idea of imposter syndrome is often for, you know, based on your minority kind of disadvantaged um, status in which you really feel like everything is teetering and you're going to be exposed. And then the consequences are going to be much greater than I think any of us actually fear. Right. Um, I want to exhort you, if you have questions, please come to the mic, because we're, we're going we're gonna to want your questions. I can't see the mic over there. I can see that one. Well, we have a question. All right, here we go. Uh, so this is kind of inspired by actual experience, and it takes as an assumption, kind of related to what Emily just said, that life chances for different people in our society, or maybe any society, aren't equal, which you can challenge if you like. Um, but We won't challenge that. I'm not right. going um, but, but say you're, you're someone working with young people, say a teacher. Is it more right to tell them you can be whatever you want to be? Or is it more right to honestly tell them, look, society's unfair, and right now you're getting the short end of the stick. So you may not have the same options that other kids have because of your circumstances. How old is the kid? Wow. Let's say um, ninth grade. Ooh, good, Ooh. good, good. That was good. That was good. All right. You made it so much harder. Yeah, that was great. Wow. I, I think your obligation is, I think you avoid having the conversation in those terms. I think Keep your obligation is, to, is to, to try to look for opportunities for that child 
both opportunities where, which could be grand successful opportunities, but also sort of fallbacks. Are there, are there things which are the good outcomes for someone from a poor disadvantaged community, which may not be, you know, getting to be a senator, um, but, but it, it's, you know, it's like a very dignified, successful middle-class career that someone could have even without those opportunities. So, you, so instead of talking about it, you sort of point towards particular practical things that they can do. That's kind of a cop-out, but that's, that, that would be mine. Yeah, that does seem sort of like a cop-out to me. I mean, so my, my older son is in ninth grade, and this question would be easier to answer for younger kids because you would just default to innocence and optimism. And I think ninth grade is on the cusp of a more pragmatic, realistic view of the world. But I would still be incredibly hesitant to shut down some greater sense of possibility because even in this incredibly unfair, unequal world we live in, kids do transcend their circumstances in amazing ways. And so... Although it can feel it is, it is sort of like winning the lottery. I don't. I, I'm, I, I also don't think foreclosing. I want to argue this point because because you've seen the statistics about of African American boys, the percentage who think they are going to play professional sports, and it's you know it's measurably large percentage. It's you know something on the order of like I, I'm going to blow the stat, but let's say 30 percent of African American teenage boys think fact, they're going to play professional sports, and in fact the number is you know one one hundredth of one percent. Okay, but And that's, so that's an act of like there's a d- act of delusion that has been but, that people have and that's shared and that, that I would but not call the little than, tiny scrawny kid who can't play basketball that he will be in the NBA. That seems but that's different from But that's saying, not the questions that it was posed. Right. The question was you'll be you'll have untold riches and be worth billions and billions, which would is the equivalent of saying well, you'll be in the NBA. Well but it's sort of like you can do anything you want and people say I want to be I want to be in the NBA. That's what people right. it's what kids say i don't know i mean do you, is it your obligation to say you can be in the nba if you try really hard no, it seems like a really stupid thing to push people right. into. but but to say you can't do anything that will bring you huge material success well that's why i i don't know okay that's why you're well, trying sir, to you say want to you want to weigh in you were what do you, you think? want well i i think that was a cop-out that you started with <laughs> uh <laughs> because on this we can all <laughs> firmly stand I think the audience is on my side. Um, because I think, you know, that I'm presuming that you're coming from a, a place of uh, concern for this young person's well-being. So, so let's take that as given. You, know, you don't want to stomp all over their dreams and whatever. But let's say, you know, this student is on the verge of, you know, failing ninth grade and says, I want to be a doctor, right? And, or whatever, right? Uh, you know, I would like to go to, uh, to Harvard because I hear that's a really good school. Like... Is it more right to say, yes, you know, I'm going to be an optimistic cheerleader for you because I think that's going to turn out better for you? Or is it more right to say, look, you're almost an adult and your actions have consequences. The world isn't fair and it's not your fault. And you shouldn't compare yourself to other people who don't have the same situation you do. So, but you know what? Some things probably aren't going to happen. I think pragmatically speaking, you're not helping a kid by saying the second realistic thing. And actually, now I'm flashing. When I was writing my book about bullying, I spent a lot of time with ninth graders. In particular, these three ninth graders who had been really... Actually, maybe they were in eighth grade, but they had been really cruel to this one girl. They were bullies in my book. 
And at one point, one of them told me that she wanted to become a psychologist and to be a therapist, a clinical, she said clinical psychologist and to work with kids. And it was kind of amazing. And she was not doing very well in school. And it was a little hard to imagine, but I also thought it was kind of great that she imagined herself in this completely different way than her current self. It made me think that maybe she had this whole other dimension to her she was going to invent and discover. I also wonder at that, and I don't know enough about this, but at that age, whether they can take, whether the brain development has gotten to such a stage that they could take that serious dose of reality without it having more force than you. Uh, So that that part of what we do when we raise kids is keep some illusions alive for some period of time. And maybe some of them we keep alive, uh, like parental infallibility, for as long as... as (laughs) <laughs> Except that they How's that going for you? Yeah, it's not it's going well for me Working perfectly. But I'm, I'm going back to my cop-out. I don't think that's a question that you answer straight up. You answer it by saying, here are the practical things that you can do to give yourself a better chance. Yeah. You don't well, say, like, yes, you can do whatever you want. You don't say, no, right, you're screwed. You say, if you, if you want to become a clinical psychologist, you need to do X, Y, and Z, and here are some programs you can do it. And you don't say, you're going to be it. You're going to do dream it. You can do it. That's like... You say, there are a lot say, of steps along the steps, way. Here Let's are the steps on the way. Let's start with this. I think that's right. Um, okay. Done. Thank you. Let's let's Good actually question. let's. We, there was a there was a question we wanted to do, which will spin out of that, which um, which I talked about. Did I, what, when did we talk? Did we talked about on the show? Maybe it was in a slate plus segment last week about. I I've been struck in the in. That's boom, the sound of David being, being struck. struck. <laughs> We're all extraordinarily privileged people, not just as adults, but as ch- we grew up in, you know by all standards, wealthy, stable, prosperous homes got, were given you know, the best education that money could buy in America, went to great universities, um, or in John's case, to UVA. And, <laughs> oh, yeah. If you're gonna, you should have exempted stable out of the litany of... Anyway. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's true. <laughs> um, but I've been struck recently as a, in my new job just how many doors are opened for me you know, it's not like I didn't know this, but how many doors are open for me? Because I'm like a white guy who has, who's like highly networked in all these places that are advantageous to me. And I, and I came to the question, which is like, when is it, what is your obligation when confronted with all your privilege? Are there ever times when you should not take advantage of it? When do you turn down privilege? When do you, when do you not exploit the advantages that you've been given? And are you, should you constantly turn it down should you take advantage of it and then try to give it back later? And I don't, I don't, I really don't have a good answer for this. So what do you, do you guys have a good answer? Well, I think you answered the last time that as long as you're doing something that's making the world in some small way, you, as long as you can justify it as, I wouldn't, I don't want to say making the world a better place because that seems grandiose, but that it's, you're not murdering someone. You're not, you're in do no harm land. Um, I think that, it's okay, but I also think that it, when you feel a beneficiary of that, those are the moments when it's the most important to try to expand your own circle of who you are helping and influencing because I think the biggest problem that I feel like I have is that the people who are easiest for me to pay it forward with are people who are a lot like me. And so while they're lovely and wonderful and I'm glad to help them, if that's all I'm doing, then that's just sort of perpetuating the same cycle and not... Changing. Right. You just you take advantage of it, but it raises your debt to the 
to pay it back in other ways and in different ways, right? Not just to people, yeah. Right. Like to like hire somebody from like something like UVA or something, you know. <clears throat> Did tried it once. Yeah, exactly. It Never okay. again. Never again. Let's uh, go to another audience question over here. Hi, my name is Alex Thornton. Uh, I have a quick one. Would you prefer to have $10,000 today or $20,000 a year from now? 20 a year from now. This is the marshmallow test for grown-ups, right? right? It's yeah. like a little delayed gratification. Yeah. I'll take the 20 later because I feel like that's the more virtuous answer. <laughs> yeah. How would you design the marshmallow? You could use the 10 for um, Alice's yeah. For Alice's obscure. Yeah, he's raising money today. You might, that's why you're pausing so much, aren't you? Would you? What would you take? Uh, I'd take... I'd take the $20,000, which is kind of interesting because uh, when I was getting my MBA pro, uh, degree a few years ago, about 70% of the class would take the $10,000. Let's do it to here. pay off their Let's debts. Let's do it like here. That. Try to pretend you haven't heard the influential answers. It kind of we'll depends do t- on, do you think you're a really good investor, right? You, there's no person who's a reasonable investor yeah, who can turn 10 to 20 in a year. Unless they invest in Atlas Obscura. There is a person like 10X that. 10X hun- would be 100. Yeah. And that's not... That's more than 20. That's like a terrible... I feel certain. Oh, my God, Emily. <laughs> Math like is invest- hard. You should invest with Atlas Obscura. <laughs> the- so let's... T- who would take 10,000 today? And who would take 20,000 next year? And who... Everyone passes the marshmallow test. And who would give 10000 today to, da- to David? <laughs> you know, but could, so the marshmallow test, you, you, in today's world where, you're, where the temptations are so constant, it feels like they'd have to change the test, right? The idea was you get one marshmallow, if you wait, you get two. But that doesn't sufficiently mirror the sense of temptation in our distracted world today. Right, it would be, be like f- fire hose of marshmallows at your face. <laughs> and then can you resist eating one? It would be a more... I think that probably wouldn't... I think there'd be some ethical problems with that, though. <laughs> no. All right, let's go, let's go to another um, question from the mob. Uh, I don't know who gave us this question. John, you, you sent it on. Would you give up your smartphone in exchange for five extra years of life? That's such a good question. I don't think you prepped that. Wow. <gasps> I so think that's, wait, let's that's again, not, let's do, hold on. Let's hold on. do the audience, and then we'll talk. We'll, okay. we'll How old do you wait, get wait. to be? No, no, no. You okay, don't even yeah. know. You okay, just know you get five years. Okay. Would you give up your smartphone for five extra years of life? <laughs> would you, okay, would you not give up your smartphone? In defense of the second position, which I'm pretty sure is mine, I think giving up your smartphone, you could argue, means being cut off from the whole current of your life, right? It means you can't text with your kids or your husband. It means you don't know what's going on. It means everyone thinks you're really weird. Uh (laughs) I think if you gave up your... I don't don't think this is a hypothetical. Could you have a dumb phone? I think if you actually gave gave away your phone... What, like a dumb phone is just like a wooden block? Well, (laughs) I have... My son had one until recently. A flip phone? Yeah, a flip phone. Would you have a flip phone? Uh, But if you gave up your iPhone, you would live five years longer. Like, that's a true thing. That's not true. true. (laughs) 
that's like your that's it's John totally. that's classic John Dickerson smug. I'm is gonna that an I live in a more ad? natural you world than you. That's so okay. You don't believe that for one second. You're so just you're I'm pandering. The only one who has a phone here. I'm not, how can I, I be how it? can you be saying that's who I am when I'm the only one with the phone on stage? I think he I have my phone it. in my pocket. <laughs> I didn't bring phone or notes. You you but you pretend you act you don't actually believe that. You don't Oh, I believe I would be five years healthier if I didn't have my phone. No. It doesn't mean I can give it up. What? How? How? What, what's your example of it? He has to put it on the table. I would be engaged in life in a much more meaningful and mindful way. I wouldn't be constantly worried about what's on this thing over I here. I would be much close grumpier because when I was waiting online, which I'm terrible at, I would not have anything to distract myself. But you would have the placidity of your own thoughts, your own deeper introspection. I don't, my thoughts are not interesting. It's just like a <laughs> mouse wheel, whatever that word is going on. I'll, oh, yuck. You have your phone to look up, whatever that analogy is you're trying to make. <laughs> analogy for spinning distract. thing, distract, and then you'd be okay. You would, Anyway, it's true. Science has proved it. What about you? you? There's no way. No way I would give it up. That's just a stupid thing. It's not... It's, it, first of all, I, don't, I, I reject the premise of the question. Um, it wouldn't... But no, you, you just... You, you, you give up too much currency in the world, too much actual connection today, too much actual importance to your own lived experience. And it's not to say, like, that life people didn't live before there were smartphones obviously they lived rich full lives but once your whole universe is on this connected networked world you kind of have to participate or you can say i will give it up and i will go live somewhere which which is a very different completely different space in the world you, you're going to go live off the grid somewhere and th- then you can you could say that and if you want to make the case that you would go live off the grid well, and not do would, the job that you're that great at. Or isn't that implicit in the move I'm going to... No, well, I'm going no, to... I'm, I'm not willing to do that. I think I'm going to become CEO of a high-tech firm and then lose my smartphone. No, it would mean you would reorganize your life in a way that would be less tied to the Do you think we would answer differently if we were hummingbird. older? Surely if we were we older? Would. Right. Because yeah. both death would seem more imminent and we probably <laughs> would care less about our phones. Plus, we'd be really... I'm serious. Five years seems very theoretical and abstract to us right now. Plus, you'd be all old and wouldn't know how to work whatever the technology was at the time either. You'd be like, oh. (laughs) With your claw? Is that what we're going to end up with? (laughs) Deeply arthritic kind of... Because I'm on the machine all the time, constantly like this. Of course my hands are going to be... It's all going to be voice activated. We'll go to another question out here. Yes, miss. Okay. Um, My name is Alex Madison, and my question is, do you think that you can be a um, sincere and ethical advocate of the public education system and send your own children to private schools? Good question. David is going to shine on this one. His kids go to public school. My kids go to public school. Um, Can you do it if you're in private school? You guys take it. I mean, you guys have kids in private school. Let's see. You you don't have, you can duck it. It depends how sincere you need to be. You said ethical and sincere? Um, I think that you're compromised. My kids go to private school. They went to public school at one point. Um, and I feel intensely guilty about it, actually. I feel like it's the most irresponsible social choice that we've made as a family. I mean, there are reasons for it, and my kids are happy. But I think that public schools work much better when everybody is part of them and people with resources invest in them. And the way that you do that is by having your kids there. 
Yeah. And it also has made me in the whole charter school debate feel very uncomfortable with judging people who send their kids to charter schools because I basically think charter schools are private schools for people who can't afford private school. And so even though the wider ramifications of all of these choices are terrible, I really understand why people make them. But I think there is something essentially... Um, uh, immoral about my own choice given my values, and yet I somehow sleep at night nonetheless. Do you have a better justification? No, I don't. You don't what? I don't have a better justification. Um... The other thing I'll say about both of us and you, in fact, so we all went to private school, and I think, and so did my husband, um, and so I, I think in our family it feels it feels risky somehow that we would be taking a risk with our own kids that nobody took with us. And also that if you have money, that this is the most important thing you can possibly put it toward. Um, So I suppose that's a partial, but I don't really defend it. You got nothing over there. I got nothing. I got nothing. You don't want to be a little smug? I, no, I don't want to be a little smug about it. I mean, because I'm so smug about everything else. <laughs> you <laughs> actually just, really aren't smug you know about that, this. You know that when, when they're explaining they're losing, part of in, in politics, like when they have to explain they're losing, I feel like that's where we are now. <laughs> uh, well, let's do the audience here. Do you think that you can be, and what was the ethical and what was your other word? Sincere. Sincere and ethical advocate for public schools of your children in private schools. Do you think you can be? Do you think you cannot be? That's a great, that was a great question. That's a great question. Thank you. This is David Plotz back in the studio. Our Conundrums podcast is brought to you by Acura and the all-new 2015 TLX Luxury Performance Sedan. For decades, Acura has built performance sedans with unwavering purpose and passion. The all-new 2015 TLX represents more than the latest evolution. Rather, it's the clearest expression yet of Acura's performance philosophy, its power and control brought into perfect balance. It's anticipating where the driver wants to go, changing the way wheels move and guide you. It's uncompromised design in the name of unrestrained feeling, putting exhilaration front and center once again. It's that kind of thrill. Check out the all-new 2015 TLX at Acura.com TLX. Or better yet, experience the thrill for yourself and take a test drive at your local Acura dealer. We're going to bring on our guests because we, we, need, we, need, help. we need help out here. So uh, Amy Dickinson, you know she is the author of the, the great column Ask Amy, uh, which is the, the successor column to um, Ann Landers. And she's a local treasure, and uh, we are thrilled to have her. Amy, where are you here? You're, you're making... There we are. We just did the handshake hug thing. We navigated that. Thank God I'm here. That's all I can say. We're so glad you're here. Y'all are all wrong. (laughs) We're not going to let you revisit any of the questions. Every single. We can't. No, we're not going to revisit. I need to revisit every question. In the box, is it seeping? No one asks. Oh, right, you know, like, the blood. You gotta dig in. You gotta That's add. True. You gotta, you gotta get the you black gotta... light out. You gotta. Is it CP? And the the yeah, this last one. Well, the um, the one about striving children, discouraging kids from striving. Have you never seen Rudy? Like anybody can do anything. That's the. 
discourage people to play college football. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, Amy, we're going we're gonna to go to your, the question that you, you and I talked about a little oh. bit before. We'll start with that one, then we'll get to, to trickier ones. This is a real-life question from um, someone we know. Really? Yes. So, um, their neighbor, a close friend and neighbor, had little kids. Both families have little kids. The close friend and neighbor tells, um, tells our friend that she's going to have a Native American-themed birthday party. And... All, uh, invite all the kids to come dressed as Native Americans in a very honoring kind of way, honoring the Native American culture. They're not a Native American family. No however. one is Native American. No one, I mean. I... So is this, is it, first of all, is it okay to do it, one? Second of all, is it, if it's not okay, is it, is it your, do, should you call your, your neighbor on this um, and, and Why? Okay, first of all, it's such a classy idea that you have to give the person props, right? But um, I actually believe, I feel pretty strongly about, despite what I do for a living, like not telling other people what to do all the time. What? I don't understand that. No, I don't walk around going like, that's a bad idea. I would not want my kid to go to that party, and I, it's just, it just doesn't reflect like our home values, to do that. I might send the kid dressed as, like, an Indian from India, you know, with the, like a... So one of your values is irony. (laughs) (laughs) And how do you do that? Or your spirit animal is irony. (laughs) Right, my spirit animal is irony. But, no, that's... It's pretty offensive, but I don't think I would tell the people, oh, this is so offensive. I just wouldn't... We wouldn't... We wouldn't play. But would you? You would send. You would let your child go, but not in not in costume, not in the assigned costume. Yeah, I would probably. I'm not sure dressing as an Indian from India is much better. No, no, I I might let the kid go, but I um you know would try to explain it to the child like this is this is on the line. We don't so dress up like other. So what's wrong with it exactly? What are we uncomfortable with? Is it that Native Americans get fetishized and romanticized so often? What, what would we think about a birthday party in which everybody dressed as someone from Indonesia or Sri Lanka or someone, or cowboys from Texas? Well, if the family, okay. if the family's cowboys Sri Lankan, are... the, that's another thing. But if, no, I no, think I'm just appropriating saying, like, another, another category. But Sri a cowboy Lankan's is not, a cowboy is a professional identity assumed professional identity. It's not a kind of intrinsic racial identity. It's not identity. a cultural, ethnic thing. Is there any cultural or ethnic costuming that we would Certainly, feel fine about? Don't you about? feel like, I, I don't know that I actually see this. Or I think you seen can this go in our, the drunk Irish. I think that's mm-hmm. still fine. Irish would be okay. Well, you, well no, but don't you think like your, parents, your parents probably had parties where everyone dressed, like the Japan-themed parties and the women wore kimonos. My parents didn't do this, but I can imagine seeing pictures That's from the 60s. That's a good example. And if you saw a child dressed in a kimono for Halloween who wasn't Japanese, I wouldn't be offended, would you? Well, you would. No? no. Huh. Would you be offended by one Indian on Halloween? I don't think that would even occur to me to be offended by it. Maybe that's wrong. I would feel like someone was playing with that identity. Well, John... Well, isn't that what you do on Halloween? Play with identities? Yeah, and that's why a slightly would you just different take thing the category of thing. Japanese or Indian out of that. Then I'm trying to think if someone was dressed as a Jew, how would I feel? Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> well, but it was, a, you know, the, 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 and the, what would that the party, be? I think yeah. what yeah. the party had a kind of a cultural element to it. There was going to be educational aspects to it. They were going to talk then about it. Then it would just Native be a American bad party. Culture. Yeah. <laughs> Like, hey. And your kid wouldn't want to go because it would be educational. No. Really, there's nothing that says fun like a lot of homework about. <laughs> you guys are you're deflecting with irony, but you're refusing to engage with the subject, John. Would you say that's your the children whole point there? of the show? <laughs> no, some of us are trying to get deep here. So, my older son was in a production of Peter Pan last year, and in Peter Pan, there are Indians. And they had Indians in Peter Pan. And I'm trying to remember. So Eli, to his slight despair, was actually Peter Pan, um, which was sort of difficult spring for us because he's not really an actor. Um, But he had a line to say that had... Because, you know, in Peter Pan, there's this whole, like, they're talking like mugga-wugga. He had a line like that. And I wanted to cut it. And he also, from the script, was supposed to say the word pickaninny, which he didn't know what that was. So I said he was not saying pickaninny. But I also wanted him to not say the whatever it was Indian lingo line. And the director agreed with me about pickaninny, but kept in the Indian language. And I didn't, I kind of defer. I felt like I had tried and that was enough meddling. Um, and the play went on without anyone really commenting. No so one that protested. Or just as bad. Or fine. I mean, those are older. That's a. It's surprising that at a it progressive, a progressive middle school, progressive private middle school. But do you just not that, do Peter children. Pan anymore? Do you turn no, the you Indians just, you into just something cut, you, else? Yeah, you change it a little bit. You cut it. You can't cut all the Indians. Well, they fight with the pirates. Whatever. That's you, a problem. You, you do something, or you can do with it. Never mind. So, and, but if you we know what? Back change. to those people should have had a pirate party. Yeah. Everyone loves, you know, like that. That's a fun. Yeah, pirates. But that's more fun. I, yeah, but it's hard I think to be I'm with you. I'm with. I'm. I'm. I'm aligning myself with your remarks. I. I think you can be filled with sort of like quizzicality and slight moral indignation, but it's just don't don't break a friendship over it. Don't like talk about it. But let's let, can we can we go to the audience here? So first of all, is it okay to have a Native American theme party for your Five-year-old. We've made yes, it so yes, okay. it's okay. I think it's sort of okay. Uh, is it not okay? Should you? So the not okay definitely has it. Should you? Um, should you say something to the host parent about it? Should you keep your trap shut? You know, I get really tired of people, like, traipsing around, telling other people what to do. I know Should it's weird. Should leave it to the professionals. Giving, giving what I, yeah, leave it to me. I'll do it. Um, <laughs> no, I just, I, I think we're in an age, sort of this moralistic age of where people feel very free to call each other out all the time and to judge and make proclamations about what other people are doing. And... I, Oftentimes, I just think there isn't any need for that. So can I tell you my temptation about this lately? It's parents who put their children on gluten-free diets and the children don't have celiac disease. They just apparently are grumpy when they eat starch. Oh, man, that's a rough one for me. I've been keeping my mouth shut, but it's tough. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, and how does this manifest itself? You run around like with a baguette, just like, you know, just like. There's like a school event. This happens actually frequently. Like a bandolier and with croissants. And then there's a mom or two or three or four who are quite 
I would say ostentatiously, they would just say they were, they are like putting, asking for ingredient lists, putting labels on food, bringing their own gluten-free food. And then I've said with relative calm, like, oh, are your kids gluten intolerant? And then there's all this, oh, no, well, they might, this total baloney. No, but what if they were kosher? If they were kosher, would you feel like, oh, I, I better honor I that? I have a lot of issues around food restrictions generally, but I mean, I think a religious justification is different from a fake health justification. Listen, no, but the, the, um, the, the, the mom response, the passive-aggressive mom response, the one I would use would be like, oh, I'm sorry Timmy's so ill. But she, but Timmy is not ill. No, no, no. no, no that, that, that's, that's her point. game. That's oh, her game. Like, and then the oh, person says, oh, oh maybe. Now I, 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 know, I know why you have that. Now oh, wow. I got it. Uh, Tiffany is so frail. I'm so, so sorry. How can I help? You know, like, I've been yeah. noticing the trouble she's been having. Yeah. Right. Dive in. Yeah. Go But they would go probably in. sort of start agreeing yeah. with you about that. <laughs> right. However silly it was. Okay. Let's move to an- another question. Um, this is from Phil Goldstein, longtime GabFest uh, fan commentator. What piece of advice would you give to your 22-year-old self about, could be about anything, about Relationships, work, life, money. Mm. And isn't the second half of that, how would you convince yourself to... I mean, Honestly, your, your 22-year-old self doesn't give a shit about what you say. I would I mean, have... I totally... No, I but would that's have, what gives the question its complexity. Go ahead. No, I would... Okay, this is not going to leave the room, so I'm safe, but um, <laughs> I would definitely tell my younger self to have more sex... And enjoy it. With more. more different people? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Definitely. You know, I was such a, I don't know, I was like such a goody-goody. And um, I, I would, that's the one thing. I would, I, tell, my, I would tell my 20-year-old self, there's a, there's a <laughs> there's girl named Amy. There. <laughs> <laughs> I have a, do you wish that you'd had more hookup sex or more sex with people you really liked? Um, Both, either. I, false I choice. Yeah. It's a yes. It's a yes and. No, That's okay. yes yeah. and. Yes it's and. a yes and. Yeah. I don't know. I've been doing some reporting on hookup sex with college. Some it's reporting yucky. with college students <laughs> about hookup sex. And no wonder seems, you're so tired. It seems bleak to me. Actually, I'm all for right. more sex with people you really like, but it's yeah. starting to seem to me that my romanticization of hookup sex is just that. Huh. But actually, my 22-year-old self was. I'd like to, it I was wish 1980. It was like 1982. It was pre-AIDS, it was pre-all of that. So going back to my 22-year-old self, I agree with you about the, like, the soulless hookup sex. But back in the day, it didn't seem yeah. like that. We weren't doing a lot of that. It was, uh-huh. different. It was like more fun sex. Right, your 22-year-old yeah. like self is from a different era. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you were coked up. A you didn't pre- even know. I was so coked up. The, yeah. Another I, regret. There was so much more soul back drinking. in the 70s and just in general. I think mine would be, I, I, w- I wish I'd had that answer, but mine would be, um, I agree with that answer, definitely. I, I think I would, I would, I would but it, wait, is it, are you directing it to your actual self or to a hypothetical 22-year-old? You. No, you. You've got to be. Oh, okay. All right. Not Sorry. I don't, um, Do you want I, me to answer yeah, go while ahead. you think? I, well, mine would not help me. I would tell my 22-year-old to calm interesting. down. Wait what? Wait, what he was going to tell any other twenty-two-year-old, but not himself? Yeah, I would tell. I would no. Mostly, I think Plan the thing, for the lots thing of I don't hair? like about twenty-two-year-olds is, is the twenty-two. <laughs> 
22 year olds are too like I feel like young people are too interested in themselves and like their own problems and I'd be like oh but you weren't I, you were like I was, ready no, to no, take actually, it in no I, to, to, no I have lots of faults that was not one of my faults absorption's <laughs> not a problem for David it's true um, huh. So you have to think about your No, own. what are yours? Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say I would tell... I remember my 22-year-old self. I was um, spent part of that... Most of that year in Israel, and I was very, very anxious. And a little depressed because I was so anxious. Um, it was probably... Cause it was the year I was most at a loss because the structure of school was gone. I didn't really have a job. I didn't know what I was doing. I had no sense of that I was any good at writing, which was what I wanted to be doing. And so now it's easier to look back and think like, chill out, go on that trip to Cairo. You That's know, where the right. Syria. Comes in. Don't worry yeah. about it, right? Totally. Like, just yeah. go places, yeah. have fun. It's going to be all fine. I was not very good at that yeah. when I was 22. Yeah. And now I'm also not good at it. Right. <laughs> I know that's what I was going to, but I would say the exact same thing, but except for if I would say that to me at 22 now, why doesn't me at 71 now say it to me now? Right. Good point. We yeah. can still use this advice. Um, right. now I'm we waiting for that voice to after. come down. Well, now um, but we what practical one... advice would I... Um, 22. 20. I think I would probably tell myself not to be such a jerk to my mother. Uh, and I think the convincing thing would be that she won't be around. So, sorry to get... All right. We're going to go to a question. I think we have one over here. Are you, were you next? That's such an ethical answer. Oh, you're going to get your. You question belong later. here, sir. Thank you. <laughs> um, my name is Sean Rafeko. I'm a longtime listener. Thank you guys so much for coming to Chicago. I was recently debating this with a couple of my friends. Is there such a thing as a truly evil person? Yes. Great question. Yeah. Luckily, there are very few of them, but yeah, there are sociopaths who don't feel empathy and want to manipulate people. And but yes, is that their fault? Right? If they're if oh, they're you mean if they're way. wired that way? I guess I'm not. The fault part of it, I'm is like a big free will question. But I think they are capable of enormous evil, and that essentially it goes deep enough that um, it. Yeah, I would say yes. What do you think? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there, there's just evil evil people, evil behavior. We had this conversation at lunch. Mike Volo, our producer, our, our producer was arguing, Mike was evil. arguing there's no, that there isn't such a, that he was arguing against evil. And I would say, like, you look at, you look at what the Taliban did to Afghanistan when they ruled Afghanistan. Like, it's unquestionably, like, evil. That's evil, you know, what you were doing to women, what you, you know, the stoning, the kind of throwing people out of modernity, throwing people off of education, you know, restrictive behavior, you know, behavior patterns and whatever, whatever possible good that you've identified, like, oh, there was less crime is vastly over, over, you know, weighed by the, the fact of evil. So I think it's all over the place. Yeah. I, I just read for the first time, um, Man's Search for Meaning. I mean, literally just today I finished it. And, um, Viktor Frankl was uh, uh, in, at Auschwitz during um, the Holocaust, and he talks with great compassion about some of his, the people, the, you know, their, the Nazis turned into oppressors were fellow um, slaves. And he, he just speaks with great compassion toward his fellow prisoners who were the commandants and the people who beat them, 
but just given the context of his story, um, no question in my mind that there is evil and, and the evil people set up an evil machine, you know, to like meet their ends. It's, yeah, I do believe yeah. that. It's a great question. Yeah. It's I can't, it's, it, the second part of the question was, what book would you give oh. yourself? And my answer was Man's Search for oh, Meaning. Oh, no kidding. Because the central insight of the book is that the one thing you have control over, the one thing that can't be taken away from you, no matter what, is your reaction to what other people do to you, which is a very useful lesson. And if you can maintain and, and discover that lesson when you're seeing the greatest acts of depravity and cruelty on the planet then you, surely you can do it, you know, right. at the office. But is, is your point there that the, the capos, that the, that the enslaved, that the slaves who were forced to do, to do cruel things, do terrible things by the Nazis were themselves evil? Or it's only, the Nazis are evil, but the people who are, who are carrying out their orders are that you cannot hold them morally culpable he, in the same way? He claimed it was as if they were, they, none of them had any choice. Everyone was assigned a role, basically, and that was their role. And they were trying to survive, and that's how they survived. He was incredibly compassionate towards, towards them, those people. But not towards... But, no. but, would, but would you, would, could you make the same... Then back it up a step, can you make the same argument for the Nazi guards? Who are, who are, if they do not follow the right, orders How far of, does that argument how far, take? How, right, how, far, up, how far back You're can you go? You're all just following Turtles orders. all the way down. One of the things he talks about is how they ladled out the soup because it was a constant search for food. And he said he appreciated the, the guards who ladled out the soup just equally, didn't look at the, at the prisoners and just everybody got whatever, rather than favoring. But then he talked with great, you know, like this great fondness of the time that you know, he got the extra potato from the bottom of the of the soup pot. But um, the Nazi guards, no, I think I think people need to uh, find ways to resist, even when they're. I mean, there are. I think there are lots of heroes we don't know about. But who, wh- but the slave the slave capos couldn't resist. Right. They are not able to resist, but the Nazi guards had a moral right. choice that they chose at some point. Right. They could they, run away, maybe, yeah, yeah. you know, and risk being shot or whatever, but they could right. run. Right. The distinction is the bad thing you do out of suffering versus the bad thing you do when you're in a position of relative comfort. You know, back to the whole, like, 22-year-old question, there's another moment in that book that I loved, and I may mangle it, but it's something like... Um, life, you know, life is like a trip to the dentist where you keep waiting for the worst part to be over and then before you know it, it is, you know. It's like this idea of living your life in dread of the bad things that will happen and then it's gone, it's all over anyway, so. But we're going to go uh, vastly in the other direction now. You don't, I know you don't want this question, John, but I, I decided we're going to do it anyway. What, um, what state would you get rid of? <laughs> Confusion. Whoa. We have to keep Florida because there's so many good laughs and stories. I was stories just thinking that about that. Right. What we do without Florida, that would be a punchline problem. Yeah. 
Um, could we could we just like mush the Dakotas together or the Carolinas? No, you can't. You got to get rid of it. You can't just be like, oh, well, it'll just be its own. You're like, it's gone. Is this like where you're supposed to throw yourself off the boat so I should pick Connecticut? No, come on. Connecticut, that's a terrible idea. You know, Maine. I think Maine. Really? I love I know. I know. I'm a Yankee. You don't like puppies either, do you? I feel like I feel like Maine is expendable. No way! What are you talking about? Not Alaska? Isn't that expendable? We send a lot of money to Alaska. I think of Alaska as a place with great natural beauty. Think of all the tires. It's all asphalt in Maine. Still a frontier. There's still a frontier. Oil. We need their oil. Maine. I don't know. Really. You guys are missing the... It's Mississippi is the obvious... It's obviously Mississippi. Why Mississippi and not Alabama or Louisiana or Texas? Mississippi is... Mississippi is... It's like Alabama plus. Oh. <gasps> I or love minus, Mississippi. I, I can't believe you said that. Eudora Welty is from there. She's dead. You know, <laughs> I know that John... I don't actually like dead. this question. <laughs> I was thinking of Maine, honestly, because it's up there that in the end you could just redraw it and shove it off to Canada. Mississippi, you could do it and you'd have a longer coastline. All right. Okay. I'm convinced. Yeah. I think David has just killed off Mississippians, whereas you just made them can- Mainers Canadians, which they might actually <laughs> you, be perfectly so what would, happy about. What do you you know guys what? I, I'm now with John. I don't like this question anymore. Oh, cool. It's, it's a, this show isn't going to air for two months. But no the states will still be there. It's not like... <laughs> I mean, Hawaii, the volcano is at places. least eating up part of the... What about Oklahoma? Maybe Puerto Rico doesn't want to be a state anymore. How about that? It's not a state. Puerto Rico isn't a state. <laughs> but you know what? If we... Wait, what did she just say? She wanted if to get we... rid of Atlantis? What? If we got rid of maybe Hawaii, maybe Hawaii would revert to being, you know, the little kingdom that, that was it what had I meant. been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that logic. Yeah. Um, all right. And John definitely is not answering. Fine. Okay. All right. Let's go, let's go to another question, which is not like that. There are gendered bathrooms. You have uh, men's rooms, ladies' rooms. Probably they have some here at, this, at the Park West. There's no line at the other one. So it's Can the men's room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you use it? Is it is it okay to use it, or does that? Well, let's uh, let's ask. So, is it okay to use it? Is it is it not okay to use it? How many of you all have done that? I've done it. Does it matter if it's a one small stall bathroom that you can lock and you're the only person in it? What if it's a communal bathroom and then you go in and you close the door, but there are going to be other people okay. who are not your gender when you come out? What, I, what if it happens to me? That happened to me back in the day when I wasn't having sex. I was on a date with a guy and we went to the theater. And this is before, of course, I figured out he was gay. He was taking me to the theater. So... <laughs> This was during intermission. The men's room, nothing. Empty. Empty. Women's room, you know, women out the door. So I asked him to stand guard for me outside the outer door of the men's room, and he said he would, and I went in there, and men started coming in, and he didn't do it. And you just wait in the stall, cowering until they left? 
exited, you know. Was there a apology. urinal? Because that's kind of part of the question. I didn't right? use the urinal. No, but, I know, but <laughs> but a gentleman was using the urinal right. when so I came out. So that changes it, I think, a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Yeah. So it you think awkward. it's not appropriate if the it is a line collect- I have not collect- crossed is the walking through the men's room with a urinal in it that someone is using. I have right. not. That is where I draw the line. You have to draw it somewhere. That's, That's what makes us ladies, right? <laughs> I think I just admitted to being not a lady, actually. I mean, I'm all for. I'm all for. Uh, I don't. I don't know how I'm going to get through this argument I'm about to make. I don't really know where I'm going. I'm all for not having gendered restrooms generally. I think, like, it seems. Oh. Seems like we should move oh. away from that. No, but if we but have in some them, places like airports, you really should. Like, if we have I, them, let's ask your wife how she y- feels. Yeah. It's yeah. like I one of the great joys of like older adulthood is not having to share a home bathroom with a, a male spouse. I have to say, it's the it's the little things, David, that yeah. we that bring us joy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you're when you're at O'Hare and at about nine a.m., you don't want you want the men's room to be you know and by itself. <laughs> If you're going to have shared right. bathrooms, so that, there's no so more urinals. I, uh, that's, okay, that's, and a, you're gonna that's an argument for not for saying this is a, a male space, this is a female space, and let's ne'er the twain shall meet with Mark Twain. Right, <laughs> although the problem is we're not the problem. As we're increasingly aware of people who don't want to be male or female, it's clearly right. causing a lot of dilemmas, yeah. and maybe it's well, causing right. needless dilemmas for a lot of people who shouldn't be forced to choose, and what do the rest of us really need to impose that choice? And I, look, I've been in, you, you know, who... I've certainly been in urinals when some a woman has come in to clean a bathroom. Who cares? It's not... What's the big I deal? Care. You I care. care. You don't want men I in care. your bathroom at all. But you have. But the lines, remember those the li- lines? Remember the lines. You want to be able yes. to go use the men's room, but That's you don't right. want men in the ladies' room. I'm not sure in, about in, that, Amy. In my hometown of Ithaca, New York, there are actually a lot of gender-free bathrooms now. That's awesome. That's great. Where... You're sort of given a male, a female, and then whatever, which is great. And it has a changing table, which is good. It's all good. We had shared bathrooms in college. I didn't like it at all. I didn't got either. Gross. I know, gross. That is also that's definitely true. That is that part is true. Let's go over here. Question: You've been waiting very patiently. Oh my God, she's still there. <laughs> Hi, I'm Cecilia Shortreed, and my question comes up a lot at home. Um, oftentimes, I'll get in a disagreement with my mom and my dad will walk in so I'll explain my side to him and my mom will explain hers and then oftentimes I think that he wants to side with me but he feels obligated to side with my mom does he have that obligation or is it okay for him to kind of override her opinion and side with me oh no can you give a for instance yeah um I guess just maybe like going somewhere if I want to maybe go drive to a you know Basketball game so not just away. your opinion, but like a permission, a can you go do yeah, something, something how, like that. How old are you or were you at the time of this debate? Yes, I'm currently today. 17, so... 17. Hmm. Parents, you know, yes, parents should never me. undermine each other in front of the child. You, you do that, you know, you do that separately on your own dime, but in front of the child, no, you should never ever undermine each other in... Oh, I really you know, hope my husband doesn't listen to this yeah, show. Yeah, never. It's a good thing he no, no. Wait, but what if, what if the, 
her mom has made just a terrible, stupid decision. It just, Listen, so she has to live I, with it? The thing to do is, to, is for the father, if the mother has made a terrible, terrible decision, he really disagrees, you don't undermine the other parent in front of the child. You sort of take it outside, work it out, come back. I just think it's a really pretty basic parenting thing that parents need to, even when they disagree, they need to present sort of a peaceful... United Front. You think that's for the benefit of the children? I think it's for the benefit of marital harmony. Yeah, well, I also think it's important. I honestly think that it's important for kids to believe that their parents are basically in concert. I think it makes them feel more secure. I really do. I Parents who undermine each other um, in publicly, I just think it's... What, let's, I, it I, also, I, it ahead, also makes any final decision, if it's adjudicated in that way, seem provisional and therefore has, you figure, you can figure out your own way to get into the box uh, if they say not to. So you need a united front to make, mean whatever decision you finally make to have the full force of law. And yet we all cheat up, right? Please, do you always? Totally, totally. (laughs) Thank you. But here's a different different case, which is I think you're, Right, Amy, I totally don't live up to it, but I think you're right. But what about, the, what about things which aren't kind of permission? What if it's a, what if it's a discussion about a, an issue or something which isn't, which isn't like one parent is granting permission, the other parent uh, is overriding? Okay, here's where one. It's, where it's a, where it's a, where it's Birth a, control. One well, parent doesn't believe... That's not where I was going. One, <laughs> no, no, no. One parent feels very strongly that... Um, you know, let's say it's a, there's a religious divide in the parents. One parent feels very strongly, no birth control, like no discussion about it. And the other parent feels very strongly that it's important to discuss these things. Like who wins that one? It's really, really, really tough. It's tough. So should I tell you what I did? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> no, I... Um, I felt like it was really important to uh, back up my husband. He felt very, very strongly, and he had this religious point of view. And then um, if any of the kids came to me, I only did this if they came to me. If they came to me and they asked me directly, I told them the truth about how I feel. So this was wasn't it. providing birth control? This was simply saying birth control exists in the world? Or no, this is, this is talking about... Sex, like talking about sex, like talking about birth control, like really being open about that stuff in the home. And um, he just felt really strongly about it. So you just decided his view was, his view trumped yours. I did the United Front thing. But why isn't, what if you'd gone there first? I mean, it seems that your view seems more persuasive. You feel as strongly about it. I waited. I, I just waited until anyone asked me directly, any child that asked me directly, I would tell the truth, but uh, about how I felt about it, it unvarnished what I think. But I felt like in terms of the family, this was the prevailing ethic in the family that he had established and I was, I respected are it. These your children? These are, this are is they, a blended family. So, so would you in the in? So you have children that are. Well, this is a slightly different situation because yeah. you're you're arriving in the middle of the movie in right. a way. I mean, right. 
as opposed to if you if it was a relationship that didn't already have a pre-existing set of prevailing views. But it also had to do with views. dealing with a parent who felt very, very strongly um, about something very specific. And I was like, okay, you know, like that's really important to you. So You weren't um, like, okay, harmony. this is important to you and it's crazy? Yeah, I did. I said that, but not in front of the kids. Yeah. All right, let's go. I don't think you know this, Amy. We're going to do cocktail chatter. You can skip this part. We're going to go to cocktail chatter. which For this show, we do... The, the moment this is going to air at the end of the year, the moment um, this year that was most uh, wonderful for us, it could be a personal moment, it could be some moment in the culture, some moment in politics that brought us the most delight, joy, pleasure. Um, anyone want to start? I actually have one. Good. And it happened tonight. I've been thinking about this all day. I didn't know, but just before I came on stage, I was checking you know, my social media accounts. And Ashton Kutcher uh, called me out today uh, about a column I wrote and called me brilliant. So I'm like, hey, that's it. Yeah. I'm done. <laughs> I know. It's hard to know how to take that. You can that. drop that mic if you yeah, want to. Bam. Boom. Hard to know how to take it. No but. wonder you're thinking about having wanton sex. <laughs> <up here>. <laughs> <laughs> no, when, you were t- when you were 22, Ashton Kutcher was... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Eight-year-old, his eight-year-old self. Well, right. he did you couldn't hug him for fear of asphyxiating the little baby. Yeah. <laughs> uh, John, do you have yours? Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, my uh, the favorite moment. It's a personal moment. I've talked about it actually on the show before in uh, chatter. But was um, was reading the book Moonwalking with Einstein, which is the um, Josh Four book about um, about memory. It's a fantastic book. I've read a lot of these books about, um, nonfiction books about adaptation and creativity and learning and ideas, and they all have a very similar rhythm to them, which is anecdote, study, anecdote, study, anecdote, study, and by the, the second one, you're like, right, I got it, there's the anecdote, and, you, and they, have a, they feel the same all the way through to the end. This one had wonderful different um, narratives going along that pinged at the right time, it was beautifully written, but the, the most fun, and the reason this was so memorable, was that I was reading it on vacation, and it talks about the various memory techniques that have been used over time, back to antiquity, and um, one of them is to create a physical location, and then if you're trying to remember a list, is to put different items in each of those rooms, and then that's the way you remember whatever it is you're trying to remember. And so I decided to try this out with my son, who, was, who had just turned 12, with the presidents. And he had been given for each birthday by one of his uh, aunts um, for three successive years cards with the presidents on them. And so clearly the aunt's uh, memory was in need of some refurbishing because she gave it to him every year. So we always have this joke during vacation about the year, because his birthday comes at that time, about, you know, studying the presidents on these cards. And, and we did it one year, and, and it was basically George Washington and, like, President Obama and everybody in between. The bookends. Yeah, exactly. The bookends. And maybe a Kennedy, but he thought Kennedy was, like, 12th or something. So... Um, so we started to walk through the room of where we were staying and, you know, putting all the presidents in the rooms. And, you know, here's Grover Cleveland and Chester Arthur and Zachary Taylor. And, um, 
So we spent three days just kind of talking about the presidents because of this book and wow. making up, you know, funny names. One of the things you do to remember things is you make up odd. Um, so James Buchanan is James Blue Cannon. And, you know, that's the way you remember his name. So as we walked through the rooms, there were these presidents kind of walking along with us. Um, and it was just a delight, all born by a book that had no intention of doing that, which is, seems to me that if you were going to write a book, that's what you want to do, is create three days of joyous activity uh, of, you know, between a, a father and his son. My daughter could not give a damn. But <laughs> we're, uh, we're going to figure out what it is that she wants to memorize soon enough. You just, you just that beats the Ashton Kutcher thing. I, re, I, I remove my, my entry. No, yeah. it's not. It no, that was beautiful, yeah. It's not a competition. It's a problem with having John around. Emily, what about you? Well, so I'm having a lot of trouble remembering really anything that happened in the last year. So I, I feel like the, the highlights of my year all have to do with people being willing to talk to me about something that's surprising. So sometimes this involves my children, who are now at 11 and 14, often really completely disinterested in speaking to me. But when they are interested in talking about something they care about and are trying to figure out, because they're so withholding much of the time, it's incredibly exciting to me. And I I have the same feeling sometimes as a reporter when someone I really want to talk to... um, tells me a story, tells me something about themselves, trusts me with that story. That's my very favorite thing about my work. Um, And I also feel this way sometimes with friends, or I was talking to one of my sisters today about something she was trying to figure out. Um, And so maybe there's something a little selfish about this because I'm getting to help in these situations as opposed to asking for help. And I'm maybe more comfortable in that role. But there's something about someone else being willing to open up that is... um, it's really, it feels like such a um, privilege to me, and I'm always grateful for it. I think mine is, uh, uh, some of you who listen to the show know I'm a huge fan of collective singing, and I went this spring to, um, I'm also a soccer fan, to Liverpool, to the Liverpool Stadium in England, and before every game, the Liverpool fans, 40,000 fans, sing this song, You'll Never Walk Alone, at the top of their lungs, and it's unbelievably chilling and moving and wonderful and just to be in a group of people who are that kind of invested in the emotion of the singing at the at that time felt very slightly nazi but it was it was and i found it incredibly wonderful i in fact i listened to it to it as i was walking over here tonight and thought god this was this was great this was this was the moment the most ecstatic moment for me in 2014 thank you to the Park West in Chicago. Thank you to the dear people of Chicago for coming out to the Conundrum Show tonight. And, and thank you to our sponsor, Acura, for bringing the GabFest here and to bring it on the GabFest nationwide tour, which, which finishes up in New York next week. Our intern is Max Tawney. He's great. He's not here tonight. Our producer is Mike Volo, who is here back there. The managing producer of Slate Podcast is Joel Meyer. The executive producer of Slate Podcast also here is Andy Bowers. You saw him earlier. You should follow us on Twitter at at SlateGabFest, Facebook.com slash GabFest for Facebooking, uh, GabFest at Slate.com for emailing. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest. 
and you can subscribe to the show in iTunes. I expect all of you to do that if you haven't already. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson and Amy Dickinson, who is not related to John Dickerson, thank you very much, and we'll be back in Chicago soon. You have, a, you have a coda, John? Well, no. My, my, son, my son replied back to the picture of all of you. He said, cool. <laughs> Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.